Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O save your people, and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd, and carry them forever. Those are verses 6 through 9 of Psalm 28, which along with Psalm 26 are the psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, August the 31st, twenty. We're continuing our look at the life of Solomon in 1 Kings 8, verse 65, through chapter 9, verse 9. We're in the book of James still, continuing there in chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, in the gospel according to Mark, chapter 14, verses 66 to 72. So Solomon held the feast at that time, the feast of the dedication of the temple, and all Israel with him, a great assembly from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God for seven days. So Solomon is there. They've dedicated the temple. The glory of the Lord has filled the temple. The people, Solomon and the people have brought innumerable sacrifices. And so there's this great celebration, as there would be. Like I said, it's been about 3,000 to 3,500 years um, that they've been a people without a fixed place for the nation to worship. And so they, there's a bit of nationhood that's happening here, that they finally have a place for worship where all Israel can come. There's a place of their own. They're not just scattered tribes around a land. There's a place that's the city of God, and now there's a temple in that place, and, and people can come there, and they can be one as the Father is one, and they can express that unity by being in that place and being part of the temple worship. And so for seven days they celebrate. On the eighth day he sends the people away, and they blessed the king and went to their homes, joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. As soon as he had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeah. And that's where he asked him, ask of me what you will and I'll give it to you. And that's when he asked for wisdom. So the Lord said to him, I've heard your prayer and your plea, which you've made before me. I've consecrated this house that you've built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. So the, the eyes see, right? So the eyes see the, the, the people. They see, he, the, the eyes of God see what God's people are doing. So that could be interpreted as judgment. Because you don't just see um, without think without. In this situation, right, I mean, I can see a lot of things, but if I see my children do something, then I care. I'm, I'm making a judgment on what they're doing. But if I see other people, I don't have to care as much, but these are God's people. So his eyes are on his people, but also his heart. So you get judgment and mercy there at the same time. As for you, if you'll walk before me as David, your father, walked, with integrity of the heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and don't keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I'll cut off Israel from the land I've given them. And the house that I've consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. 
I mean, can you imagine having just finished building that temple, seeing the glory of the Lord fill the temple, hearing the worship of all the people of Israel who have gathered in Jerusalem for the dedication for seven days, and then having God say, if, as glorious as this is, if you or your children's children fail to do all that I've commanded, and you don't keep my commandments, and you go after other gods, I will remove my presence from this place, and it'll become a house of ruins, and Israel will be gone as well. Uh, it, th- that's the fear of God personified right there, which is to say, if you do everything I've told you to do, then this is going to go hunky-dory. But if you don't, and you turn after other gods, it's done. The entire experiment is done. So as glorious as this place is, that's not the important thing. The important thing is keeping my commandments and statutes and serving me and worshiping me. It's the way to keep yourself safe. It's a way to keep yourself in the favor of the God of creation. Just Don't go after other gods and do the stuff that I've told you to do and don't do the stuff I didn't, I told you not to do. And and that's all it is. It's as simple as that. And he says, if if that happens, everyone passing by will be astonished and will hiss and they will say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they'll say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. He says, it's not going to be tricky. It's not going to be about my failure. It's going to be about your failure. And the whole world will know that it's your failure. It's the same thing as in creation, right? I mean, God creates this wonderful and perfect creation, and, and now it is what it is. And people, yet, yet even still, people ask, so, so what kind of God does that? Well, the kind of God that gives us liberty and gives us freedom and we mess it up. We don't have the Lord, the, the world that God made. We have the world we made because of sin. Not because of Adam and Eve's sin, but because of our sin. Their sin caused a certain kind of alienation. Cain's sin caused a different kind of an alienation. And then we just go from there. And we get to the place where, where God has to alienate people from the land completely and wipe it out in the flood because the only intention of man's heart was only evil all the time. I mean, it's not a long jump, frankly. We're, we're there. <laughs> I don't know what, what we could possibly not be doing that the people of, at the time of Noah did. Because we have scientific ways of doing stuff they couldn't even think about. And so that, that's the word. And it's a word for America today, too. And we, God's people, have to own that. We failed. We have absolutely failed. This culture's gone. I mean, we're standing on the wrong side of this right now. We, we are definitely in the distinct minority. And the more uh, you try and follow him, the more in the minority you are. I mean, there's a cultural Christianity that's, that's semi-acceptable at the moment. But, but if that's all you got, then you really don't have anything. And so we, we've got to be bolder now. This is not a time to retreat and go hide. It's a time to boldly proclaim you know, and that's, we're in the place where Peter is here in this gospel lesson. 
in Mark, Peter was below in the courtyard, below where the trial's going on is up. And so he's below in the courtyard. And one of the servant girls comes and says, hey, you're one of the Nazarene. You were also with, with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Wow. I mean, could you, could you distance yourself any further, Peter? Is it possible? I don't, even, I don't even understand what you mean. Not only do I know what you mean, I don't even understand you. In other words, I don't even know who this person is. I'm just sitting here by the fire getting warm. I, I don't even know what you mean. I have no earthly idea what you're talking about. And he went out into the gateway. So he left the fire and moved himself a little further out. And, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystander, This guy's one of them. And then he denies it again. And after a little while, the bystanders all also said to Peter, Certainly you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and began to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Behold, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Man, I mean, what do you even say? Why is he there? Why had he come? Why did he go to this place? Why did he follow Jesus from a distance and then show up here in the courtyard of the high priest? Why was he there? What he, he when the pressure was on, Peter wanted to distance himself from Jesus. When they were out in the field, when they were out and Jesus was doing great things and the crowds were coming to him and everything else, Peter basked in the limelight. But now, now, when it's hard, when, when it's no longer popular to know Jesus, when you, when you came into town for Palm Sunday, Peter, you were right there, man. You were lapping it up. You loved the adulation of that. But here now, less than a week later, you don't know him. Don't know him at all. Unbelievable. It's what's going to happen. It's what is happening. It's, it's what's happening. It's no longer popular. It's no longer even acceptable in some ways to proclaim the gospel and to say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. That's not popular anymore. In fact, it'll get you into trouble. It might even get you on a, into a Homeland Security watch list for you to say there's only one way, and that's Jesus. It's going to get worse before it gets better. That's just a warning, and it's just the truth. So, pray. <laughs> Which is exactly what Jesus told Peter to do. Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but pray that it might not happen. And so we need to pray. We need to be strong in the Word. We need to be strong in prayer. We need to be rooted deeply in Him. We need to abide in Him like we've never done in our entire lives. And we need to take heart and be strong and courageous and be of good cheer. Be joyful always, is what Paul would say in these circumstances. But, but th that's exactly the issue, is, is that, that, nope, now it's harder. And I, and I think there are going to be many, many churches that are going to be emptied, and they're going to be converted for other uses, just like they've been in, in Britain for the last 20 years. I think we're looking at that same thing here in the United States 
as people turn further and further away and are reprogrammed. In this James passage, and see, this is why it's important for us to, 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 to do as well as believe, is because if it's who we are, then it changes everything. If it's just what we believe, we can change that without anybody even knowing it. Listen to this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? What does that faith even mean? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. If I told you yesterday that it was my anniversary, and so, you know, I tell Suzanne I love her on a regular basis, you know, at, at least a few times a day. But if I belittled her, berated her, beat her, and had affairs with other women, and just continued to say I love you, would she have any reason to believe me? I mean, that's the thing, and, and that's sort of like the, the way that we should look at this, is, is that, that our lives are a testimony to whether or not we love the Lord, or do we love other stuff? And that's the the issue, is always not just—the issue has never been, you just believe. I mean, that's never been the case. I'm saved by that faith. Yes, I am. But that faith is supposed to lead me not just to justification, but also to sanctification, because now I'm to be a living testimony and a living sacrifice, Paul says, to Jesus and to the power of Christ working through me. He says, well, somebody will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. It's impossible if you're not doing anything. If, you're, if your life bears no witness to your faith, then you don't have faith, is what James is saying here. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. I mean, it, he's saying, you don't even shudder. You're, you, don't even, uh, you don't even understand that truth as well as the demons do. They understand that, it, that if God is one, then, oh my goodness, is he powerful. He says, yeah, you believe that and do well, but the, the, the demons believe it too, but they shudder at the implications of that belief. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Yes, go ahead. Were, were not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Didn't he have to actually do what God told him to do? If he didn't, could he properly be said to have had faith? Did he trust God? Well, let's put that to the test and see if he does or not. And he did. He says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. The fact that he believed is proven by taking his son up on Mount Moriah. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And he's not saying that anything apart from faith is even good. And you can't be justified by anything you do apart from faith. But if you have faith... You'll do what God commands. You'll do what God asks. You will extend yourself in love for that neighbor. You won't just say, I love you, and move on with life and treat that person poorly. 
and you treat them poorly by failing to provide whatever it is you're able to provide. And that's the whole of James's argument. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? She, she got the reward, the salvation of herself and her family, and that appears in the Davidic line, because she did something. He says, for the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So it, it, it's a simple argument. And it's the call on our lives today to display our faith, to show what it means to lay down our lives for our brothers, to love one another as we love ourselves. It's the time when the church has an opportunity, in my mind, to reach out to the world. And we should be now, we should be able to be about the work of God rather than the work of politics, because we lost that game. Now let's do what God would have us do, and let's become the people God would have us be. Let's turn our attention toward the work of God rather than the work of politics.